So this week we're going to be talking about a uh, what what I consider to be one of uh, probably the best Bond movie of the Roger Moore era of Bond movies, which is to say our era of Bond movies, right? Yeah. How do you see Roger Moore, Adam? Because you're a little younger than us. Oh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a touch younger. I'm I'm re, I'm 33. Um, my first my first Bond movie experience in the theater was Octopussy. So I'm a Roger Moore man. Yeah, so you're you're close though. You're close. It's not right? that different. Like you no. still think of Timothy Dalton as the new Bond. As the yes, exactly. I do. <laughs> I remember hearing that this guy was going to be the new Bond, and it just seemed wrong to me because right. uh, Roger Moore is Bond. And you know, like growing up, you he, you hear a lot of trash talk about Roger Moore. And yeah, I don't know like why. my dad would always. I, I don't think I've even said this, but my dad would always always trash talk Roger Moore as Bond. We'd watch him, and we'd totally watch. You know, whenever they came on TV, absolutely. If you're flipping through the channels, and a Roger Moore Bond movie was on, we would watch it. Stop! Stop flipping! Start watching. But my dad would always get in a crack about, well, this guy's no Sean Connery. Yeah. <laughs> I, which I don't get. Like I, I've, I'm, I will say unabashedly, Roger Moore is my favorite Bond. Excellent, excellent. Um, and but, but I mean, so I don't really remember anything about Octopussy except how um, I didn't yet get to enjoy the ironic giggle of, of a movie <laughs> called Octopussy, and no, and nor do I think anybody did at the time, which is weird to me. Um, I did. I remember being afraid that my mom wouldn't let me see it. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I guess because did I you think, see that one in the theater? It was 1980. Yeah, I definitely saw it in a the theater. So I was 10 when Octopussy came out, yeah. and uh, I think I that just, was 1983. And I remember thinking that my mom. Well, what if my mom says I can't go see it? Right. I do remember it being vaguely sexy. I don't know. I don't know why. In a in a in a way that you know, I was too little to know what sexy was, but I knew that it made me tingly a little bit. <laughs> I don't remember anything else about the movie. The the first movie, the first Bond movie, I that meant that had an impact on me was View to a Kill, because mm. it was just so like creepy in the right ways with yeah. Grace Grace Jones and and it was Chris Walken, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great movie. And see, and actually, that one I think more thinks of as being like one of his worst. I remember that one, and I thought it was very creepy. Even just still thinking the fr- when I saw him walking the guy down out of the the Zeppelin, the blimp. Yeah. And then the then and the, and the uh stairs the collapse. Stairs just or, collapse, you just go sliding freaked. I'm like Oh yeah, it's just yeah. heartless and oh. brutal. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, I don't think we're doing justice to the to the greatness of the spy who loved me. Well, I, I really do like the spy who loved me. I really like this film. Uh I really enjoyed it. I've watched it three times. I like haven't recently. done a huge amount of research on it yet, but I just looked it up on Ooh. Wikipedia and they said oh. that this one they used the title of an Ian Fleming book, but didn't even just threw the whole book out. Wasn't right. Okay. Based on. Okay. So they, this was th- that's what it was. So it was if if you read the novelization, which is what I'm starting on with the audiobook. No, it's not a novelization. It's, it's not a, no- a novelization. It's a novel, and it has nothing to do with it. Right. Yeah. I, just, you, I I'm glad that you haven't done the research yet because there is the there is a piece of trivia that oh. I hope neither of you know. No, don't, I know don't it. Say I know it. it. Oh, oh, let I me say know. it. I, I got to say it. Not right now. It's, I'm going to let it out slow. Right. Oh, but, uh, it's good. It's just the juiciest. No, John, you know about this. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. Does. I don't know sure, what he's yeah. going to say. Well, maybe maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's let's get let's let it unfold naturally. All right. Well, here's what I think though, and, and just knowing only that that the that the movie was not based on any on a book, I think it makes sense in hindsight because to me, what makes this great is that it is like the it's like the epitome of the Roger Moore James Bond movies. 
It's mm-hmm. it's the perfect Roger Moore James Bond movie. Yeah, and so, and it's certainly not the if there is something that makes the movie great, it's certainly not the writing. <laughs> right, and Yikes. it's. <laughs> but it's not bad though, and it there's an awareness of the filmmakers of what it is that makes these movies good, what people are going to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. I I don't remember Bond movies ever being so tongue in cheek as this one was. It was, and I you know I think though in in a way, I don't want to say that it it, it was a formula formulaic in that way. I I do feel like. Like what you're saying is true is that they they really did get a sense that we know that these are the things that Bond fans are going to the to the movies to see and we're going to give it to them. We're going to make sure in the right doses, right? Which I think is essential, and I think is where a lot of these movies exactly, exactly. It's like any creative endeavor. When you start, you have this conception of what you're trying to make, how you how you want it to make the viewer the reader who you know whatever form the listener whatever the the art form is how it is you want them to perceive it when it's finished at the outset Mm -hmm. and you know oftentimes maybe even inevitably you wind up with something different than than the original conception i can't help but think that this movie turned out exactly the way they wanted it to yeah really really i i disagree really really yeah yeah, I, I really think there was a, a distinct lack of vision in this going into it. I think they knew they wanted to make some sort of a a Bond movie about a nuclear uh, nuclear submarine disappearing, and I think that's where the that's where the vision stopped. Hmm. Personally, see, I I think it's very different. I I don't know. I really feel differently about it, and I feel okay. like it all starts with the song. I feel like the theme song is perfect. S- Right out, right off the bat, I'm going to disagree with you on that one. I think this song, I think it's such a terrible, terrible, terrible song. I agree. It's such a such a terrible use of a song in a Bond movie. I think it's perfect. I think. Okay. It's, Do you like? I mean, so here's the thing: Carly Simon, at this time period, 1977, she's she's at the top of her game. Yeah. But, but yeah, this I, was a get. This is a major get to yeah. get Carly Simon to do this song personally. I can't stand the song. And this is the first Bond movie where I hear the song. I just, I got to fast forward through it. I can't listen to it. I don't want to hear it. You know, right. it's, a, it. it's a commercial jingle. It's like, it's, it's gross. I don't even know how it reached the, the number two on the charts. Yeah. I think you guys are missing it. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I love it. it. I've been listening that, to I think it. you're appreciating it on an, in an, on an ironic level that I, that I am not able to get to. Hmm. But do you, you know, John? Like, do you listen to a lot of Carly Simon anyway? Never. That's the only Carly Simon song I ever. Listened I could to. see you just sort of sitting back listening. I bought this. I bought this after the movie. I've, I've listened to it ten times a day, every day, in the last week. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nobody does it better. Think oh, about God, the problem like that they're facing. What? What is this? Is this the tenth James Bond movie? Is it the eleventh? This is number ten. Um. And it's it's Roger Moore's third in a role. What is it? Number ten. Number ten. All right. So Connery did six. Then they had that the the one we don't talk about was yeah. seven, and now this is the third one. So most movies, a trilogy is a big deal. It's you, you pretty much have to be like a hit to have a trilogy. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying this was this was the third film that Roger Moore did. Therefore, it was his trilogy. Hmm. Maybe, but it's also just think about it. I mean, there nobody else makes ten movies in a series, right? This is it, it, and this is still long ago from today. They're up to like they're making like the twenty third one now, right? But even at this time, even in nineteen seventy seven, this is a movie series that had been in movie time 
going on forever. I mean, it's more like a TV show than a movie, except it, it's not like a TV show because it's not week to week. It's like every two or three years a new one comes out. Like, so they're in like uncharted territory in terms of the repetition and, and the dangers of falling into formula and the dangers of not following the formula and not giving people what they're expecting. You know, if you're making the 10th movie, people have some expectations of what they're going to get when they show up. And I feel like the whole thing is, is very aware of that and comfortable with where they are and, and what they're doing. And I just feel like the song epitomizes that, that it's, you know, this is a, this is a guy who's almost weary of, of, uh, there's almost a, an awareness of, uh, another, another nuclear disaster that I have to avert to say. Yeah. Right. right. (laughs) And, uh, and Carol King is just the person to sing about the nuclear Mm -hmm. disaster. Mm -hmm. So what is, so this calls uh, an interesting question, which is what is this, what is a Bond theme song supposed to be? Because you guys have more bond experience. Supposed than to I be do. or supposed to? For me, it's all about what how it makes you feel. It it needs right. to set up. Sets the right, tone. It sets the tones. So each song has a unique uh, character that that is supposed to be different from the other. It's, yeah, it's supposed. I think to, okay. it has to set. It has to frame and set up the movie and set your expectations for what is going to follow it. It does See, seem yeah. like there's there's a correlation between the movies that have a good theme song and the better Bond movies. The better ones seem to have better theme songs. Well, Live and Let Die for sure. That's a brilliant right. movie. Um, right. View to a Kill is my second favorite theme song, I think. Love that one. It's a good song. Um, but I, I, love, I love the earlier, but all the Connery ones where, where, where it's very, I don't know, you just, that's the kind of sort of the, the feel that I still associate with Bond. It's not the, the 80s stuff, uh-huh. the 60s stuff. Um, in my mind, they're all supposed to be sort of dark and foreboding and like sexy and cool. And to me, there's nothing sexy and cool about Carol, Carol King and Marvin Marvin Hamlish. I mean, despite despite how sexy the name Marvin Hamlish is. (laughs) But that's what I, but I do feel like there's a self-awareness of that. I don't know. I just feel like. I don't see it. I don't know. I agree I really with you like, on the self-awareness part, but it's just like the wrong kind of self-awareness to me. So do, how do we want to do this? We want to go chronologically? Yeah. So you've got Stromberg. He's like Blofeld, except they can't use Blofeld anymore because right. they killed him off. And then they, there was like this, there's this whole legal dispute over the Blofeld character that, that they had to walk away from. But he's, you know, effectively Blofeld. Yeah. He's pretty good. I think he was well cast. What do you th- What do you think, Adam? Uh, well, he's not the strongest character actor I've never I've ever seen. I don't remember what he looks like right now. And I just a lot of time. A lot of his acting was pushing buttons. Yeah, he's pushing. And buttons. apparently, apparently, he has webbed hands. Did you Do you know this? I did notice this. I thought yeah. that that was like a, a a quick little like a gimmick or something. Yeah, I because mean, he's so like little... he's uh, you know they didn't really show it. Now you're saying he as in Stromberg, not he the. No, the character they did him up with webbed hands, yeah. but you could only really see it in the in the in the print. You can't really see it on on DVD. It looked gross. <laughs> Noticed it between his thumb and his forefinger. Yeah. I couldn't tell if it was something with the actor. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I was wondering too. If it was because they didn't really they didn't dwell on it in the movie. 
Yeah, this is still of the era when usually if they did any kind of art direction at all that was supposed to be like that, they would do like a close-up and even oh, talk yeah. about it. Yeah, you know? t- totally. Yeah, there was not a lot of subtlety. And there's not a lot of subtlety in the movie, which is weird because if, if it was that interesting a choice, I would have preferred that they featured it a little bit more. Oh, yeah, very little subtlety, almost no subtlety. So it starts out, the sub, the sub, the, the, got the guys in the sub. Guy grabs a cup of coffee, looks like. And then you see the very, you know, Jurassic Park style ripples in the mm-hmm. coffee as the, you know, they, they feel the, the shaking of it. And then the, the sub is lost. Yeah, but the, the way... It sets um, everything up. The, the story point or the piece of dialogue that lets you know that this, the sub is lost is the other end of a telephone <laughs> call where the guy goes, What? The nuclear <laughs> submarine has disappeared without a trace? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, excellent Which, writing. <laughs> you know, there's other ways to do that. But wasn't, I, wasn't one of the ones we just watched a couple weeks ago about missing submarines? Or am I th- No, it was yeah. about eating eating the the spaceship that ate other spaceships. Yeah, but didn't they have one with submarines just a couple of movies ago? No? I guess not. No, they were we, they were on the the wrecked uh QE2. Right. Or whatever. It was. Live and let die has some scuba stuff, doesn't it? We don't talk about underwater stuff on this show anymore. Oh, really? I think you have to, though. This is what I mean, though, about this being like the prototypical Roger Moore Bond movie. It's yeah. got the underwater stuff. And then, skiing. And then next in, next in the movie, chronologically opening, is a skiing. See, the, John, Adam, I don't know if you know this. John doesn't like the underwater stuff. I don't like the skiing stuff. I don't mind either. And I think the underwater stuff with the Lotus plays really well in this movie. I, yeah. Well, that's the exception, I, I think, even for John. I, love, I loved the, uh, the underwater stuff in this no, one. I, I liked it here, too. I think it's because what, I think they did it in the right dosage. I don't think that it wasn't like, hey, let's spend 10 minutes watching this, this Lotus underwater. I don't want to get too ahead because I got a lot uh, of yeah, notes about yeah. the Lotus. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, but the, the skiing is the, really awesome. And well, that, the cheesiest gadget ever is that he has an embossing label maker inside of his Casio. Yes, it's awesome. And I accidentally, like, I unintentionally, like, put this, put a, a frame grab from that scene on my Flickr, like, a year ago before I had seen the movie. <laughs> worst gadget ever. It is. It's, it's really the worst. The worst. <laughs> it's just like, not efficient. You have to where keep refilling it with a cartridge. Yeah, where is the tape coming from? Because if, you, if you've ever used, now, there's a lot of people who are listening who are like, what are you talking about? When I was a kid, if your mom or dad had an embossing label maker, you would use that for every. You'd label every toy. You'd label label everything because it was fun to click this thing off. And your parents would figure out that you just used like eighty dollars worth of tape because the stuff was super <laughs> expensive. But if I you've know. ever used this, if you put even the slightest crimp in it, you get the white line straight across it. If you yeah. curl it up too much, it stays curled. It'll never uncurl. So where, how was this in his watch? I think his, his was like aluminum though. It looked like it was like coming out. It was like it. it embossed aluminum but how would it how would it do the impression i, I mean it's no idea it, why not i mean if it, we're assuming that his watch can receive a radio signal of some kind some kind of bro- why not just do it with the led yeah. it's i think it just shows how terrible how novel the idea of compute pixel-based computer displays are you know mm-hmm. that they didn't even think of that right they didn't even think even though they weren't technically possible they couldn't even imagine them <laughs> right you know what? And then you've true? got you've got another portable portable device in the uh, towards the middle end of the movie that is another like portability must have been huge then. Yeah. 
Uh, um, I the, remember the microfilm viewer thing. When I was in high school, I went through and, and I read a whole bunch of Isaac Asimov novels, got on like this huge kick and, and read these. And I remember there was one where he had these guys in a spaceship and the way like the engineering department and the ship communicated with like the captain on the bridge was through like a ticker tape, you know, that, that messages would come up and, and spit out like, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah. like stock market ticker tapes. And that was supposed to be like futuristic. Yeah. There's another I, it, part, there's another part like towards the end of the movie where, um, let's see what basically like they have to communicate some sort of a, oh no, no. When they have to, ch- well, this is at the end of the movie when they have to change the, <laughs> the programming of the sub, of, right, the, of right. the missiles yeah. to launch the missiles. And that just, inv- I don't know, like, it's just like a similarly where it reads the manual. to Yeah. It reads, <laughs> then they print them out and then he carries a piece of paper over to a telephone. Yeah. But here's what I love. I love that there's a ski chase. It takes I don't it's know great. 90 seconds. Yeah. It's awesome. A couple of good couple of good ski jumps. There's, you know, some nice camera work like tracking shots as as he like goes through these tunnels. There's a uh, minimum of uh, blue screen stuff. Yeah. It's, it's mostly <laughs> right. practical. It's just there's <laughs> right. one glaring Roger Moore shot where right. he's like, right. you know, dodging and weaving. Yeah. On a blue uh, He's got the cool thing where his ski ends up has like a a rocket propeller on the tip of it. And he shoots. He, he like kills two guys at once because it goes through one guy and and right, hits another. In his pole. Yeah. And this just this just reflects in the fact that it, this is very much a a 1977 film because a modern day Bond would never be caught dead in a like fluorescent yellow ski suit with a big bright red. Oh yeah, he's, yeah he's, he looks like a yellow. He looks like a banana. Yeah, like yeah. why would you? Why not just make it black? Like okay, you know, I get that the the. the the villains who, by the way, all all speak to each other in a heavily heavily accented English. They all speak to each other in English, heavily accented, uh, rather than using whatever their native language. Yeah, would I'll be. grant them that though, right. as a filmmaking device. I don't know. But Sometimes. why the yellow? I mean, what is that? I, yeah, I, most of the costume choices, Terrible. especially for Bond in the movie, I actually I, I love. Like he's got some great suits and everything. Yeah, the yellow jumpsuit doesn't do it. No, for me. no. But then a great stunt. I mean, oh, a truly a great stunt. Just one. the best. Just the best. It's it's, and this is what I'm talking about. About this being like the best of the yeah, Roger big. Brothers. This is it's a great stunt. Apparently, uh, I read I read on the the uh, I think the is it the Wikipedia page that talks about it that said when this opened in London, uh, that the opening scene when they showed it and the, and the Union Jack parachute hops open, that the audience and I have in my notes here that the, the quote was that they cheer. Uh, like fans at a football game when they saw that. In the <laughs> I can believe it. It's, it's so a great, great touch that it's a great touch that it was the Union Jack. Yeah, it could have just been a you know red parachute, but, but instead the, great, the the greatest touch for me is that is that the music drops out entirely and it's just yeah. silence. It's just like yeah. that. It's just it holds that beat for like a good a thirty good seconds. Good stunt. And apparently they shot that scene. They went out. They shot that scene like a month before the rest of the movie started shooting. The stunt guy gets paid thirty thousand dollars to do it. He's the only one in the world that can do something like that. And uh, they have like a bunch of cameras shooting it, but they all miss the stunt except one camera, and that's why they never cut away never from cut. it. But really? it works. I think it works better. I think yeah, it works absolutely. Better they the hold it. It's one shot because then you can't say, "Oh, they faked it," or "Oh, they did it two takes." It's just no. It's one. It's almost a, like a Hitchcock thing. Yeah. Awesome. So going back a couple of movies to the the big boat jump in Live and Let Die, I watched the DVD extras and uh, uh, what's his name? The hack who I hate, the director. Uh, Hamilton. 
Yeah, Guy Hamilton says uh, – and this is a good point though. He was talking about what it is, these these issues of this is an existing series. You kind of have to have an understanding of what it is that makes a Bond movie. And people say, why do we do these practical stunts and you know what you could save a lot of money by using models? And and yes, we could. And he said, but that's what we – there's we firmly believe – everybody involved in these movies firmly believes that that these – unbelievable practical stunts are one of the reasons people come to see these movies that you know mm-hmm. that it's real and there's no way with special effects and models you know they obviously didn't have computers at the time but you know there's no way that you, you know when you're seeing a practical stunt. yeah yeah and this one is absolutely true and i feel like the fact that they don't cut that it's just this one long yeah. shot it's, it's super a great, awesome. It's a great it's breathtaking. Point. It's breathtaking. And it's, it's so great long. I've watched it with Jonas now twice, and he loves it. This is one of his favorite James Bond movies. And the first time he saw it, and he'd seen a couple. This is not the first one he saw, but he'd seen a couple James Bond movies. Uh, it gets to this point, and he goes off. He skis right off the cliff, and I said, "Well, that's it. He's dead." <laughs> and it holds. And you think, but you're thinking like, "How the hell is he going to get out of this?" <laughs> you're right? you're a great this, parent, right? man. Right, but it's so it takes so long for his shoe to open. Did he and cry or get upset or? No, he just says, "No way, James Bond never dies." Oh, that's cool. Like, he totally got it. He totally understood. <laughs> he absolutely at the age of you know seven years old that's or six, great. whatever it was when he first saw it. He totally understood that you're going to sit here and they're going to make you wait for ten seconds, but there's going to be some way that he gets out of this. He's a cool kid. Really it's a cool great stunt. I th- I feel like this movie at this point you you just know that you're in you're in for a good movie. Yeah, and I love. Can I, can I can can we back up a couple of scenes? Because um, there's something that I wrote down in my notes that I wanted to discuss, and it's like the scene where you're introduced to the the guy who's just about to get killed, the KGB. Yeah, the KGB who's just about to get killed. He's in bed with Barbara Bach, um, and it's her reveal basically. Right. But what 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 pulls away to reveal her? Is just an entire lens full of back hair. Yes, Did you guys yes. Take- I, I have a note on that also. By what she's like a dirty Russian. I wasn't sure I was going to go there, but I don't think that's the intention. I don't think it was just to show a dirty Russian because he's supposed to be otherwise <laughs> handsome. I think that was just sexy. I think that was just sexy at the time. Was it sexy or was it just acceptable? <laughs> no, it was, it was hot. It was a. It was a. It was a look. You know, that's why <laughs> Burt Reynolds did. You know, did the Playgirl shoot. You know, on the back though. No, you just were supposed to be, you know, a good um, um, You were supposed to be covered with hair. <laughs> On the back, though? I don't know. Oh, I'm just, I'm just putting it on. Right. I'm going to shave no, those I, words into my I think anywhere where you, you could get hair to sprout out was, it was <laughs> anywhere where you could get hair to sprout oh, out man. in the 70s, you were good. <laughs> the, the sad thing is, I think you're right. Right. And, you'd, and if you had any part of your body, your knees, your chest, your elbows, <laughs> if you had a lot of hair on it, then you'd, you'd wear shirts that would. That oh. would God, but I wonder if, if that actor or anybody involved in the movie saw that in the cut and just thought, wow, we really maybe could have waxed him or something before we did this reveal. <laughs> just beautify the shot or, a little. <laughs> what, if, what, if, like, they, what if they were aware of it, right? But they cast the guy, they did like the casting call and never had him take his shirt off. That yeah, that yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know that they they cast these guys based on like their their headshots, and then they had a couple guys come in and read or something. But they did it with their shirts on, and then they they go on the day of shooting, and the guy takes his shirt off, and they're like, yeah. Oh, and they're behind schedule. Yeah. The razor girl is on her coffee break. There's there's just nothing they can do about it. Right. I just imagine like guys on the set like <laughs> getting sick, <laughs> especially the poor camera guy. Yeah. Right. I had to get right so up on it. Come with makeup, makeup, and like. Oh, God, put a, like yeah they're trying to put filters in the lens to see if they can do anything about oh, the, like God. the back bush 
It's absolutely a great call, Adam. It's terrible. It's yeah, so it's such a Bondian joke too. The whole like like all of these movies are set up with these things where uh, you know you're supposed to think one very obvious thing and right, then it's right. this very right. obvious other thing. Where Agent Triple X and, and again, and how how Bondian is that that her name right. is Agent Triple X? Yeah, but that Agent Triple X you're supposed to think is you know this this Russian guy and he's going to be like the man with the golden gun. You know the just like James Bond but a Russian. Right. And now you find out that their top agent is, in fact, Barbara Bach. Was this the first time that they had a, a woman secret agent, like, enemy thing? I believe so. Definitely. definitely, definitely on on who was equal to Bond or portrayed as being equal to Bond. And the, yeah. the, 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 the novel, The Spy Who Loved Me, is all t- told from her point of view. And, like, Bond actually only appears in, like, the last third of the book is what I know because I'm a – no, you're right, and that's that's why it's that's why if in the in the audio book version it's narrated by a woman for that okay. reason, yeah, right. And the spy who loved me, the spy, the the nominal spy is uh, is Bond, right? Right. Here's a game I play, and I think everybody, or at least men, I think tend to play this as you watch these. Now, I've you know because I've watched all of these straight through a couple times in the last couple of years, but when I first started doing this thing where I, I let's watch I'm going to watch all these old Bond movies subconsciously I play this game with the ones where I wasn't familiar with where when you're introduced to any female character instantly make a decision is Bond going to end up banging her or not <laughs> yeah every right? time every time yeah, you yeah, do this absolutely right? now for example when you first meet Stromberg and he's talking to these two scientists these these creepy nervous scientists and he's at this crazy long dinner table and he's got a, a secretary at the other end of the table and they show her you could tell instantly that she was not. I, you didn't know. I didn't know that she was going to be killed, but you could tell Bond was not going to screw her because she no, was, she wasn't that good looking. She was homely. Yeah. Like, like whatever <laughs> yeah. the difference between homely and ugly is, that was this this woman. Yeah, she was like if you made a mannequin out of Karen Black. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but why do you think that they cast somebody like that? Like, is it, uh, is it so maybe to make it more palatable that she gets? Uh, killed because it's somehow the fact that she's ugly you feel good that she gets eaten by a shark yeah i mean that's the kind of that's that's the um that's the gender politics that go on in a bond movie right right so let me see here what what else have i got here so then it's pretty brutal how she gets killed right well before that we're missing a scene i like how on the inside of the secret base when bond shows up there there's a secret panel so you have to enter in a, a, a code into the secret panel and the sole purpose of the secret panel is to reveal a map of the sub's path. <laughs> that's the whole, and it slides forward and everything. And it's all, there's no other controls. There's nothing else to do. It's just, that's the sub's path. Yeah. I just kind of feel like that's a producer. That's like Cubby Broccoli stepping in and going, we need more secret panels. Right, Put a secret right. panel there. And then the, then a the guy walks up with a transparency <laughs> with a line drawn on it and slaps it up. It's so non-cool. <laughs> yeah. So then, yeah, then well, we get I like these how two it was scientists. exactly the right scale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that it would overlay. Yeah. No, but it's you know I think you're right, Adam. It's a it's cubby broccoli that you got to have some. You got to have more 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 gadgets. Yeah. So then the two scientists, those guys are great. They're my favorite guys in the movie. Yeah. And yeah, they're not they're sure. They're, they seem like they're not sure if they're getting paid at all or if they're even being let go. Let alone that it's going to be ten million dollars a pop. Mm-hmm. They're excited about that. 
Yeah. So a couple. I've got a Stromberg question for you. So when um, Aaron the G string is playing in Atlantis, so when Stromberg is flushing the secretary down to the sharks, <laughs> is he? Is this something that he is hearing? In other words, is does he have his queued up to play whenever he drops someone in the shark <laughs> I tank? I believe yes. I believe yes that the music was intended to be. That was their own. That was his own background music that he queued up. Yeah, I don't know what you call that, but Tarantino always does it, where the music on the soundtrack is. That's what is they're often, listening to. Oh, Di- what they're Di- listening diegetic, to. Diegetic, diegetic sound. That means that it's happening in the universe of the in exactly. the world. So, Perfect. like, I, I, I like to think that Stromberg, he Stromberg sometimes, like sometimes he miscues it, like he put on the wrong track accidentally, has to bring in another girl to kill. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, that's good. Like, like it, uh, he accidentally queued up, um, like "Wind Doves Cry" or something like, or <laughs> bring on the bring out the band. Uh, <laughs> so, so why then does he blow? This is what I couldn't figure out. And by the way, finally we get we get Jaws, which is great. But right. bef- why does Stromberg blow? If he's got Jaws sitting there, why does he blow up the helicopter with the scientists in it? When oh, no, nobody else can see it, nobody knows the funeral is at sea, and he's killing his own pilot. Forget the fact he's destroying his own helicopter. He's killing his pilot too. Why not just kill him or have him killed? Why destroy the helicopter and kill his pilot when no one else knows about it except him? Well, it's just to make him more of an evil badass, right? Right. That's, That's it. That's simple. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. the And it's the way that uh, – yeah, there's no real logical you – know, <laughs> truth to it uh it's it may maybe if you want to make a stretch it was so that the the when they call the families and say hey they died in a helicopter accident there actually is a record of a helicopter going down and you know it sort of covers it up i mean presumably he's going to get some insurance money on the helicopter too <laughs> yeah. but i think it's i think it's really the real reason why is just it's the typical mentality that they have with all of these bond movies of the way they want to try to jerk the audience around where you think okay now they're going to let these scientists go first they make you think he's going to kill the scientists but then he actually kills the girl and then you think oh so the scientists are okay they're going to get away and then they're like nope fooled you we're going to kill them too yeah and then he cancels their 10 million dollars right right final blow or you think, oh, maybe he's going to drop them down to shoot too. But then he doesn't do that. He kills them a different way. Yeah. But it's just the way that they like to jerk you around and, and show you different things. So yep. now now we're in Egypt. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Reminds me of, I like it when they go around the world. I like to see like what does uh, Cairo look like in 1977. Right. Yeah, I agree. There's I like good, the fight with the bald guy. Yeah, up on the rooftop. Yeah, and and he's got he's got him hanging off the side of the thing, the the rooftop, and he's like, "Where's Fakish?" He's like, "The pyramids." And he, boom, just pops his tie. Guy goes down. Now, how much would it? Th- that guy looked like he weighed a good two fifty or more, <laughs> and he's holding on to Roger Moore's tie. Roger Moore's casually standing on the on the roof. This guy is leaning backwards. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a three year old. <laughs> and if my three-year-old grabs onto my collar and leans, I'm, I feel it. I'm going to, you know, he can pull me forward. This, this, this 300-something-pound dude doesn't, Roger Moore's back is that strong? He just, he just stands there looking over and, oh, tell me where it's, you know. No, he's going to be, he, he would have to grab his own tie. How is the tie not breaking his neck? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot it was of a, I liked it. Mo- movie logic. I liked this, it. But. 
It's cool, but the, I don't like that the guy doesn't splat when he hits the ground. Yeah. Mm, just he just lay in there. Yeah, he just kind of falls like 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 a bag of like a bag of rice. Now, why and, would Jaws bite people when he's clearly strong enough to just sort of strangle them? Yeah, I think that Jaws is just a really flawed character. I mean, he doesn't he and when he does bite them, where's the blood? There's no blood on anybody or on him. <laughs> Yeah. I think it's this it, it is this weird it's this mentality that the Bond movies have where there's there's like well the guy has to have like a superpower you know and then he's going to use that superpower all the time and so the like the prototype I think is Oddjob from Goldfinger right. where Oddjob has this this bowler hat with yeah. a razor sharp thing in the thing and he can throw it like a like a frisbee and kill people with it yeah. And so he's going to use that all the time. He's going to yeah. he's going to demonstrate it early in the movie to show you he has it. Then in the middle of the movie, he's going to kill someone with it. And then at the end of the movie, he's going to try to kill Bond with it. And somehow, it it'll in fact be his downfall. You know, right. and then he got electrocuted. Yeah. Like that's the pattern. So they came up with this idea that the guy is a huge, and b he's got these metal teeth that aren't just metal, but he somehow can like bite harder like because if you think about it if you had your teeth replaced with metal teeth you still i still wouldn't be able to bite through a chain <laughs> right so there's like something else in there but that's yeah. his superpower but then how do you kill people with your teeth and then you gotta you kind of got a vampire them, i guess i don't yeah. know it doesn't really add up i feel like they kind of wrote themselves into a corner there and yeah. i'll bet when they were shooting it they were like well this this is kind of stupid what i also <laughs> what i also like about this is this is the introduction of the roger moore where it becomes obvious that Roger Moore's main fighting style is the judo chop. Because when he's fighting the guys in, 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 at the pyramids, it, there's a lot of judo chops. Yeah. And oh, I the, love the, that. The, the, the fighting is so kind of lame, though, isn't no, it? I Just love like the a... fights in this movie. Oh, God. They're, so, I... they're so tailored around Roger Moore's physical yes. capabilities. Li- limit, right. to, limit, limit. So like his, his physical limits. I yeah. Feel right. like. And he's always, he, you know, and I guess it was that true for the, the Connery ones too, but it, it just always occurs to me. I, I don't wear a suit very often, but it does occur to me when I wear a suit that if I was going to get in a fist fight, first thing I, first chance I got, I would take my jacket off. Yeah. First thing I would do first, if, as soon as I got a chance to, to get out of my jacket, cause how, how do you, I don't know. It just, it just seems odd that he's, he stays in a suit. Yeah. And the, the one thing that can, besides fancy, choreography and camera work the one thing that can save a lame fight scene is like sound design right you, like you can make it and music you can beef it up a lot with sound but they they somehow they use don't strength yeah. So yeah they they like kind of like keep everything silent and there's like a lot of like <laughs> do you know which you know which movie of this era it was made in this era the movie that has the best sound design for fist fights it has the best sound has tremendous sound design overall but the fist fights it, it, all the fight scenes in particular have unbelievable sound design is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Oh yeah. When people get punched in Raiders yeah, of the great Lost sound Ark, in that movie. it is the greatest punch sound ever. When the guns go off in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're, they're deafening cannons. Each gunshot is like an amazing deafening cannon. And it, it, but the punches and the guns in that movie are, are unbelievable. And this, yeah, you're right. This, this definitely could have used some of that. Yeah. They just kind of, they stopped early, I think. They probably did some temp stuff and then said good enough, which is weird. But it, like a lot of the, a lot of the editing decisions were similarly half baked. Um, a lot of it's kind of cool. There's some kooky, like sort of groovy '60s, '70s um, 
experimental editing stuff, like with the whirling dervish at the you know in that one scene. Um, it's still in in Cairo when somebody's getting killed. I forget, but it keeps cutting back to close-ups of the people dancing, and I like that kind of stuff, the experimental eccentric stuff but then oh, you're talking about when the guy who owns the nightclub yeah getting, i can't yeah, i was looking up his guy. name but i can't yeah. can't find it yeah he's the guy with the MacGuffin microphone right right, right. that's the guy um right so there's some interesting editing in that but then the, then the, there's some editing that's just purely sloppy like like jump cuts in the middle of a shot that they used to be able to get away with in uh, in old movies just because they okay this shot needs to be shorter okay so cut it in half and then like take 10 sec, you know, like t- take, take a second out of the middle and then slap those two pieces together. Nobody will notice. Just right, do right. it. Just go right. ahead. Trust me. So now I've got, a, I've got a question for you. This is jumping ahead a little bit. But this is something that for me was trademark Roger Moore that at the time when I was a kid watching the Roger Moore Bonds, I, I always liked this about Bond. And now as an adult, especially with these recent viewings coming up through the, you know, rewatching all the Connery movies and and coming to this point. There's something that, again, it, this is really trademark Roger Moore, but it, now I find I don't care for it as much. So here's an example of this. When Jaws is ripping open the van, Moore as Bond here, Bond, is acting very, I don't know if nonchalant is no, the right exactly word, but he's, like. he's, he doesn't care about it. Right. He's, yeah, oh, you should try the big key. You know, I mean, it's very... But at the same time, I mean, it, why, you know, he why? takes the entire thing as an excuse to make a bunch of women driver jokes. Right. I mean, why? Why didn't he care? Is my question. Like, I feel like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, because he's you know like a super spy. He's like a superman. Nothing. He's not worried because he knows he'll get out of whatever happens to him. Whereas in the Connery Bond films, you you very much felt like Bond was a guy. He was fallible. There were p- points in times where he was going to be killed, and somebody else saved him, as we pointed out in in our discussion of those shows. Whereas this Bond, you, you get the sense that he's – somebody's watching over him. So he doesn't – and he knows it too. So he's not that worried about it. Did you right. pick up on that? Do you f- – Sure. Didn't like I, this is more of a – would you say this is more like a comic book Bond? Yeah. Or, yeah. I would say that the whole sequence with the van is is the worst part of the movie. Oh, terrible. Just everything, terrible. I wish, everything. I wish it wasn't in the movie at all. Everything from when they both hop into the van until they – until they get onto that boat to go to Cairo, the whole thing, the whole sequence is is bad. Uh, it just seems like a bad idea in the beginning. You know, whole thing. Like, if you want to, you realize, oh man, this dude just killed our source, and he took the microfilm. Why right. not just run around the side and shoot him in the head and get the microfilm, <laughs> right? Or, or if you don't even want to shoot him in the head, just put the gun on him and say, "Get out of the van. You're coming with me. Hands up." You know, but I want this microphone now. You're going to tell me everything you know about who who you're working for. Why in the world would you just get in a van and let's just see where he takes me? Yeah, we'll drive all night. Just hang out. Uh, yeah. It makes no sense that that the van was already equipped with recording equipment for the back. Like just in case anybody gets in, I'll, right. I'll record the back of the van. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole fight thing is, is the only thing that redeems it is that it was a cool setting for a fight. Yeah, this this yeah. sort of archaeological and, and we'll see, so here, why was he driving there anyway? What was Jaws doing out? Is that where he lived? I mean, what was the point of that? What was out there? I don't know. It makes no sense. And at one point, as soon as they get out of the van, Roger Moore does take out his gun and does take a shot at him. So yeah. if you were going to shoot him, why not just shoot him before you got in the van? Just run around the yeah. side to the driver's side window and shoot him. And uh, 
And why why is Jaws trying? Why is Jaws ripping off pieces of the van rather than just punching through the windows or whatever? He's he's got incredible strength, and I can. I'm speculating that in the script it says Jaws starts taking bites out of the van, and then on set they're just like, "No, that's stupid. Let's just have him rip pieces." I bet that. I bet you're right. I bet you're right. I love the insider info that we get from a filmmaker when watching (laughs) these. No, and, and I do think, and stuff. I think you're right, Dan. Though I do think, and I think it, it right there is the epitome of everything that's worst about in it, about the Roger Moore movies is that here's this guy who's supposed to be one of the most deadly killers in the world, and he's got superhuman strength, uh, and it's his role in this story is central to uh, Bond's mission that this is the guy who knows you know who's behind it all, and he's got the microfilm or he had the microfilm and. Uh, He's trying to kill them both. Obviously, wants to kill them both. He's ripping the van apart, and Bond doesn't shoot him, and instead just doesn't even seem worried, and just makes a bunch of jokes about the woman not being able to drive the van. <laughs> yeah, woman driver, good one, Bond. And then oh, the worst okay. thing in the entire movie, and I know Adam, you're going to agree with me. I just, I, I remember watching this and and thinking that I, I was going to, I should call Adam Lisa Gordon get <laughs> his opinion on this. Is the van? Is all dented up. It's driving across the desert, and they play like hillbilly. Ah, John Philip Sousa. Yeah, yeah, it's like right. The, well, sorry. What were you going to say? Is the music right? Yeah, the, it's, it's the worst. The return trip in the van. I have this in my notes too. It's the worst part of the whole movie. Yeah, it's not funny. No. It's not funny. It's not cool. It's absolutely not cool. No, no. It's. I feel like yeah. This is it's the the musically the. It, it's all over the place. There's no unifying consistency to any of the musical choices. And the worst of all is all the silence. I wish that they could have just like, they could have enhanced the movie in so many of, of the scenes with an interesting sound bed, a music bed. And they didn't. Instead, they just like, whoever scored it, I remember Marvin Hamlish. I think Marvin Hamlish did all the music. Yeah, because... Uh, yeah. Barry was not available. He was some kind right. of law, legal thing. Or he couldn't work in London or something. So he he just plays all of these music cues for laughs, and it's just terrible. Dumb. It's just yeah, dumb. Really dumb. It's bad. But then it gets better it immediately. I think the scene on the boat. After that, good. yeah, the scene on the boat where she and at this point, I mean, you kind of get a glimpse of it. The triple X is is kind of manipulating Bond in some right. ways that she's. Not not maybe a full step ahead of him, but half a step ahead of him in in out in in sort of out thinking or out maneuvering him, and she's totally you know playing it up for him, and then she's got her you know her poison cigarette he uses that on him, and I love how the face he makes when he gets the the poison cigarette puff on him <laughs> is it's 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 such a cartoon thing it's like yeah. instantaneously now listen i haven't been exposed to a lot of harmful chemicals in my life fortunately but but the few times that i have had something like that like it's it's not in this instantaneous reaction of it again we've had this running theme instantaneous unconsciousness or death like mm-hmm. if you get bit by a snake instantly dead if you get bit by a scorpion that. i'll go for that dead. in the bond universe though yeah i'll go for the the cigarette dust yeah. The, the, if you puff the cigarette dust, you're knocked out. <laughs> but doesn't he kind of cross his eyes a little bit? Yes. When he, when he, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty dumb. Very silly. So then, uh, then they meet at the. They have the joint joint operation between the British and and Russian secret services. Right. Again, the look on Bond's face when he walks in and sees the uh, the Google. Yeah. Now, there's there's a guy who's who's always played the same guy. You know, he was in uh, 
from Russia with Love. Of all the ways that they've you know recast a whole bunch of the characters, uh, like obscure ones, that the guy who plays Gogol uh, was Gogol in every movie where there was the Russian Secret Service, <laughs> and he looks he's perfect. He's perfectly cast. Yeah, he looks like the head of the Russian Secret Service. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about Barbara Bach for a second? Yeah, yeah. Triple X, Agent Triple X. Is what do you what do you guys think? Is she is she a worthy Bond woman? I don't want to say girl. It's I'm going to say no. Yeah, I'm going to say no. You know what I think? I think she was way in over her head. She's obviously a beautiful woman, but Uh I think acting-wise, she's way over her head. Oh, yeah, just, yeah, real stale acting and... uh no really I th- and, and uncomfortable with the accent yeah right? oh terrible like, accent yeah terrible like accent. really uncomfortable with it though like comes across as almost in a stupor the whole movie and uh-huh. whereas i think the role <laughs> yeah, right. was really well written for this type of movie i feel like if they'd gotten a better actress it could have been really memorable yeah i, yeah, I was it, really you're, you're almost waiting for her to say moose and squirrel <laughs> At least that was my feeling. Like it's just it's a, it's a it's an act. It's a put on act, and she's supposed to be so you know passionate and, and that uh, that she wants to kill Bond because uh, he killed her you know her boyfriend, and she you know Agent like back here. yeah, and she's <laughs> she's holding on to all this and, and through the film, and then. I don't know. I just like it wasn't believable to me. Her her role wasn't so like the parts where she was sort of spying, being the spy. That was fine, but the rest of it, it I I couldn't buy into it. Well, the, I mean, there's something about the way that a good actor can make a character come to life that she yeah. just doesn't even attempt to do. Yeah. It's not yeah, even I mean, that it, she that she does it wrong. It's that there's there's almost like a nothingness there, right? It's an blankness, right? And she, and she and there was no. Um, there was no chemistry between the two of them, at right? All, unfortunately, it's a, it's a, and I think it's a missed opportunity. I think it was a real missed opportunity. Sure. Um, do you know that she's married to Ringo Starr? No, did really? not know that. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Yep. I like the way Q has already set up an entire gadget lab at this temporary. Oh yeah. The, the, is this the one with the hook? The gun that's a hookah. Yeah, yes. well, yeah. all this stuff, and it's, and, and there's a there's Fully like a serving they're all going off at the same time when they're walking through the, the right, tea tray. Oh, that's always the best scene of any of any Bond movie, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the, let me show you this cool stuff. But if you really think about it, even at a basic logical sense, if ever there was a time when Q would not set up a temporary gadget lab, it would be during a joint operation with the Russians. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like, like so they're true. giving the head of the Russian Secret Service a, 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 a tour of all of their their latest and greatest prototype secret weapons. Right. Just just a funny thing. They'll but they use, had to do it. They had to do it though yeah. because everybody wants to see what Q's up to. And all of the all of the weaponry is Middle Eastern themed. I like that right. too. Right. I forget what the other ones are, but I get the there's a tea tray. So they go. They get aboard the uh, the Atlantis, mm-hmm. and here's my question: Have any of the major villains ever bought Bond's uh, pseudonym, oh, his his fa- oh, his alias? Have have they ever? Because it seems like in every episode they always sort of know it's Bond, or they find out very very quickly. And in this one, he sort of tests him by asking him about the lionfish. Uh-huh. And, and why was why was Bond granted an audience with Doctor Evil anyway? 
because he had uh, he was posing as somebody who was going to a preeminent you know marine biologist. Yeah, like and that, was, that's okay. like Stromberg's. I don't know his hobby. His, so yeah. why if he's if he's so prominent, why does Stromberg doubt? Why is he like instantly testing? And here's the other thing I couldn't get. Periodically, every time you see Stromberg, he's pushing a different button and a different set of windows is opening up and you see a different ocean landscape. And when they're surfacing, you see the in the in the background, you kind of see the uh, the the waves and other things as they're surfacing. So you get the impression that these are these are windows. But when he's under the water, it looks very much like an aquarium to the point where uh you know he knows like all of the different fish and like he knows what they are and they're going <laughs> to yeah, be he there. Has, he's named all of them, right? And it's almost like two. Like, so I don't know. Like, is this Atlantis thing? Was it mobile or did it just go up and down? Right, because the Shark Tank had to be a tank. It was a tank inside. I don't really think that they thought that through. No, I think it's both. It's it's an aquarium when they want it to be an aquarium, <laughs> and it's it's a view. It's their windows. When right. they want them to be windows, right. and, and the it, projections of the of the fish through the windows were just way too large to be, to you know, a proper scale. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which is a pro, you know, I'm sure. Like this was the production designer was uh, Ken Adam, who had who had been Kubrick's production designer mm-hmm. as well, right. and had done all the better of the b- previous Bond movies, right? And I'm sure that they just like handed him a bunch of crappy sketches half-assed sketches and said make this happen and then you know had to throw everything together to figure out figure it out and that's it's an enormous challenge the outside of the uh, atlantis looks cool pretty awesome right i mean it's totally impractical but it's in a bond universe way it's awesome yeah yeah and 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 the the one really great music cue is um when it's one of i think the first time you see it rising to the surface there's like a very 2001 piece of classical music. I don't know yeah. what the music is, yeah. but it's nice and it's appropriate and it's definitely a nod to 2001. Right. You know, they say in Wikipedia that they called Kubrick in for uh, lighting. Yeah, that was, that was the juicy piece of trivia. That was, that, oh, okay. that, that was fun. That was, that was, well, I don't, but it's not clear to me what, what set they're talking about. The, 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 uh, the inside of the super tanker, you know, at the end with uh, where, you know, you know when the submarine gets sucked in to the super yeah. tanker? So in, and then this and all the crew has to get out like the inside of that super tanker. Um, uh, if you if you go back and look at look at it, it's kind of an awesome set. It, yeah, it it's, is. It's and it's totally Ken Adam. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's very cool. And so Kube, and so the, the 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 trivia is that the cinematographer Claude Renoir was losing his eyesight and didn't feel confident that he could light it properly. Oh, is that why? And then, and then Ken Adam called his friend Kubrick to come in. Um, and Kubrick said, no, I can't do it because I'm supposed to be working on The Shining. And, uh, and if, if anybody finds out, you know, it'll hit the fan. So Ken Adam said, there's no way anybody's going to know. I have the key to the set. It was the largest set that had ever been built um, you know, on Pinewood Studios, um, and, and it's called the 007 stage. And, um, and so Kubrick came in, just the two of them, for four hours. And Kubrick um, himself lit, like set all the practical lights in the set so that it would look cool. And then left. That's really cool. 
Great story, yeah. right? I didn't. Still, I didn't understand why I'd heard that he had come to the set, but I never. Right. I didn't know that backstory. I wasn't sure which set it was. I thought maybe. I, I was wondering if maybe it was the underwater stuff. I wasn't sure. No, I think is that that's no, pretty that no brainer. Sense. No, I believe that's pretty no brainer. But if you go back and look at like even a still frame of that set, you'll get an element of the lighting that's not really in the rest of the movie. I mean, like some of the inside, some of the interiors look like. Brady Bunch lighting, you right? Know, exactly, pretty right. crap. But but um, there are parts of that uh, super tanker set that look just really great. And the production design, there's, there's all these shiny surfaces. There's a lot of under lighting, right? And some of the tunnels in, in it and stuff kind of look a little bit Star Warsy. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this sub. Most of the rest of the movie is in this sub. Mm-hmm. What about the scene where they're playing hard to get on the train and? Uh, you know, she she turns oh, him down. Yeah. He goes in the room. It reminds me of the scene in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, where oh, he's outside. Right, right. He's outside uh, the blonde woman's thing, and he's eating an apple. And he's she 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 had told him she'd like totally turned him down, but she was she actually wanted him to come back. And she's like, "What's he waiting for? What's he waiting for?" And he's out there pacing. It reminded me of that. Yeah. Uh, even though this comes first, and Bond's in his cabin, and he's you know diddling with the champagne. He's he's frustrated. He wants to bang this chick, and. <laughs> She's over there, and it ends up Jaws is in the closet, and I guess he's been there for hours. Yeah, this must have been a long time. <laughs> must have been really uncomfortable. He's seven and he's seven foot two. <laughs> There's something really creepy about the idea of Jaws being in the closet. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it actually really it's, it's a real scare moment. It actually, yeah. like I, I jumped a little bit. Yeah, it's really creepy. Yeah, you know he's going to be in there. You don't want him in there. Right. Like mm-hmm. you might expect him to come busting through the front door, like from the hallway at any minute. You just it's it's ten times creepier that he'd been hiding in the closet for hours. He's already <laughs> been in there. Just waiting. So they coll- they're out there, the Stromberg is collecting subs. And the whole concept, the whole reason he's collecting these subs is so he's gonna send them out. He's gonna have one sub attack, you know, he's gonna have the Russian sub attack the US, the US attack Russia. Start World War Three, destroy the world, except for him and his underwater utopia. Yeah, it doesn't really add up because he didn't yeah. build the underwater utopia. No, yet. who? How is he going to build it? Who's going to build it with him if everything's gone? Yeah, it seems like it'd be a lot easier to build it before you destroyed civilization. And wouldn't wouldn't World War Three also scrub the environment and uh, you know? potentially damage the ocean as well or would it just not affect the ocean just think, just the I people i don't think they really showed it but i think it's implied that stromberg drinks <laughs> <laughs> so he dies and he shoots him a number of times to kill him yeah and i guess that i was reading that in different release of this movie in different cuts of this movie uh in some cases bond only shoots him one time but it's clear he shoots him. Was it three times or five? I mean, it was a number shot, of times. No, he shot him four times. Four times? I think. Yeah, that's unusual. And he wanted to make sure the guy was dead. Yeah, and that's very, person. I thought it was very realistic because you're not just going to shoot a guy once and like, you know, blow the smoke off the end of your pistol and, you know, put it in the holster and walk away. You're going to make sure this guy who's, who's ta- trying to destroy the world, you know, you're going to make sure he's down for the count. He's gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was realistic. Maybe the most realistic thing in the movie. Yeah. I, did you like how, how here are these guys, these are, these are the, the United States Navy. They're in a nuclear sub, right? 
these these are guys who probably are are aware of some you know future technologies, but yet they can't wrap their head around a jet ski. That they are just so shocked when he brings out a jet ski. First of all, I love how the guy walks up. Oh, here's Mr. Bond's bag. He's carrying it. One guy. Have you ever lifted a jet ski? <laughs> One guy shows up. Here's your bag, Mr. Bond. What you doing with it? And uh, and then he gets it out. And he's like, huh, handlebars. What could this be? You know, like they've never in a million years a jet ski. Right. It's obviously a, it's it's the same uh basic formula as as in uh you only live twice where he has a little kit that you put together and it makes a helicopter helicopter which seems amazing yeah which still they, seems amazing right in 2011 the, it seems pretty darn cool i right. think i ordered one of those that are back of boy's life actually <laughs> whereas the kit that makes the jet ski again yeah you're right it doesn't it doesn't really seem they called seem, it it was called a wet bike back then and uh and according to the trivia which I didn't read because I already know all this stuff, um, is that it spawned the whole jet ski industry or the, that, that oh, like, the, I the believe whole jet it. Industry. I believe it. I mean, I'm trying to think in, in 77, you see something like that. You're like, wow, it's like a motorcycle on the water, you know, but yeah. now like, it just seems so cheesy. Was he wearing a suit? He yeah, was he was suit. wearing a suit. That's because it's, it's like magic. You don't even get wet. There's no ocean right. spray, nothing. Right. And then we skipped the white Lotus. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that's, that's I have that. so many notes that's, on that. That's, yeah, we got to talk. That, I think that that deserves. That's how we should close the the discussion because that thing is so cool. Okay, I love that car. That was that was my, as a kid growing up. I didn't understand. Now, of course, you you do. But as a kid growing up, I didn't understand. Who cares about an Aston Martin when there's a like a this really cool Lotus that can go underwater? And it, and my wife came in while I was watching the scene, and I told her, I'm like this scene. It was always the be- this is the best scene. This this was like I remember this the underwater scene. So here's a neat bit of trivia for you. My uncle is an electrical engineer, and for a long time he worked for a company called Perry. Is it Sperry or Perry or one of these two companies? I forget. But uh, they're based in South Florida, and they built the submarine in one of these underwater movies. I'm not. I'm trying to remember. Was it this one or was it one in a, in a future movie? I can't remember. Because uh, they have a lot of subs in these things. But I just remember this. I just thought this was the best. It was a car. It went underwater. It was yeah. the coolest thing in the world. You yeah. think he's done. Second time in the movie, you're like, oh, they're done for. It's a cool looking car, too. So you know, cool. I said to you a couple weeks ago, Dan, where the, these Roger Moore movies, to me, in a way, they, they, do, they seem ahead of their time. Like, there seems like there's a, they're shot in the 70s, but there's a lot of things that seem 80s about them in a way that helps them hold up. And I feel like that car is one of them. That car looks like an 80s car cool 80s car not a cool yeah 70s. yeah, yeah. I, I kind of feel like uh, the same stylistically everything this movie represents just like a real good bridge between the 70s and the 80s because yeah. i feel like um when i saw octopussy or if i were to go back and watch it it's a re- clearly an 80s movie and but i think there are so many elements of this mo- of the spy who loved me that's that are clearly a 70s movie but you're exactly right the car represents that bridge so the car is a lotus esprit Spree, yeah. 77 it's s1 is the model and it was white yeah it's so hot like i would i would definitely drive that car now oh man yeah. oh, and to absolutely. me that that car was very clearly the predecessor to the delorean in styling yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it's a great car jonas is of all the james bond movies he's seen it's by far his favorite james bond car it's the, best I think the car. only one i think the only one that he's torn about is the uh 
that red Mustang in uh, uh, Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> yeah. But because but that one didn't have gadgets, you know. So I think he's he's a White Lotus man. He loves the White Lotus. Thinks it's the the greatest thing ever. And I and love the, I love I love when this thing comes out on the beach. <laughs> people are just they're you they're just freaking out because here's this car and you can see it starting to just there's just it's sort of pushing a small wave ahead of it as it drives out. It's just so cool. And he but drives, why did he why did he have a dead fish in horrible. Why did he, that <laughs> ruins the whole scene. Like why is the how is that that doesn't make any sense. It ruins right. it. It's not cool. That's not cool. You know the guy with the mullet who's there drinking a yeah. bottle of wine? Uh-huh. Yeah. And then he does the double take and looks at the wine, yeah. which is a funny I, – I, I'm okay with that guy. Uh, <laughs> he's a, he's an assistant director that made a couple more appearances. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing though is they kept going back to that guy. I was wondering if he had any other role. But then in, in – in, I don't know which one it is, if it's Moonraker or the, the For Your Eyes Only. But there's one where he's at a ski lodge and a – there's like a, it's like two, at least one or two movies ahead of us, and a, a guy comes crashing through the, the the walls of the ski lodge, through the wall, through and through the building, out the other wall, and it, this guy's on the on the the deck dr- again drinking, and then he does the same thing, looks at the wine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I like it or I don't like it. I think I was <laughs> starting to complain that they went back to it, but I, I think I've talked myself into loving it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's uh. I, don't know, I just I didn't like. I was going to say that the dead fish ruined it. Well, it came in through the crack. The dead fish came in through the crack in the windshield, mm. Mm. which guess. is not excusable. Yeah. I'm just explaining. Did we? Did we? We didn't. We skipped the shower scene on the. Yeah. The so, so, what did you think of that? What's the matter, sailor? Never seen a major taking a shower before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, purely gratuitous. Yeah. Which is to say, awesome. Yeah. I feel pretty, and I don't know what this, side boob. What movie was what was this movie rated? Was it rated PG? Oh, I think it must have been PG, check, right? Couldn't have been. Says, I'm pretty sure it was PG. I'm looking. And this is before PG-13, which I'm I'm a, I'm opposed to PG-13. I like the idea that it, there was a hard line between PG and R. But uh I feel like that scene Adam and, and you could speak to this professionally. I'll bet that, that that was one of the most carefully blocked off and lit scenes in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they had like this guy, they had like this like little set of rules from the MPAA about like how much tit you can show in a PG movie. <laughs> For and sure. they showed every bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. there were numbers, there were num there were centimeters being thrown out and, and the angle of view and every what angle lens. Angle of view, were. the amount of light, yeah, the angle, how big it would appear on screen. Uh, I think everything about that was was uh, worked out like a mathematical. Yeah. And I'm no boobologist, but I think it was a body double. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say that too. Uh, the, the, the side boob looked a little bit fuller than uh, Barbara Box. So you know, I'm not. Gonna- I think if you know what you know what I think it was. I think it was because if it was Barbara Bach, they would have blocked it in a way that you could tell. You could it see her face, right? Sure. Make it obvious that it's her, right? Yeah. I, I don't see the rating for this. I'm also looking on IMDb. And I think I it's got to be PG. I don't it's see the rating there either. Got it. Any of the nerds in the chat room know what this is, the rating is for this? I'd like to hear it. I think that's why there was some kind of controversy over how many times he shot blow, whatever his name is. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was part of it for and sure. And it's why, why there was no blood when the bald guy fell off the building, et cetera, et cetera. It had to be PG. had to be. I, I'm, I'm almost I'm – I can't say definitively, but – now, how, do you know? Do you know if there have been any R-rated Bond films? I think are the new ones R, or are they PG thirteen? By my standards, I would make this some of the newer ones R, but uh, 
I think my I think standards probably are PG-13. outdated. Yeah. I think you're right. PG-13 today is R from when we were kids. Yeah, probably. Well, that's cool. Anything I else you want to cool. cover, Adam? No, no, we got to the boob. That's all I was I was. PG-13, Casino Royale. Yeah. Yeah, this was, this was PG. You know, they screwed it up at the end. At the end, it says James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. But yeah, they made, yeah. It was they Moon Moonraker. Moonraker. Yeah, yeah but, but the reason for that, that they switched the schedule because Star Wars had been doing so well, so they wanted right. to do room, Moonraker to capitalize on the space stuff. Right. Boy, we should have you back to watch Moonraker. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to do it. It's, he said once a year, it's enough. Yeah. <laughs> Moonraker's bad. Really bad. Because it's so painfully, desperately obvious that they, they were like, holy Look at these people lining up for Star Wars. We got to make, got to make a movie like that. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. For people who don't know, this is Adam Lissigor. You can follow him, Lonely Sandwich, on Twitter. Where should they go to find out more about your your great stuff, your great work that you're doing? Um, my name dot com. Okay. L i s a g o r Adam L i s a g o r dot com. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. And when we talk about Sandy, that this is Sandy. This is Sandy. Yeah. Because he's sandwich. Yep. Sandwich video. Oh, can I say that or is that? Yeah, sure. Okay. That's what it's called. Thanks. This is, uh, as always, been a one of the pleasures of my life. This is, this is I would I would do it every day if I could. Love having you.